Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. On today's show, we're bringing you a double hit of interviews with some of our favourite stateside musicians. Up first is John Carroll Kirby, a Grammy-nominated pianist and record producer whose list of past collaborators reads like a Rolodex of the hottest music makers around. It includes Solange, Frank Ocean and Harry Styles, to name but a few. And John's new album is a wonderful tropical record of jazz and electro-funk. It's all quite Steely John, to coin the subgenre, and it's as cool as he is under his LA son. And we're only interested in Grammy nominees this week. Our second interview is with the duo Sylvan Esso. Over 10 years and with fantastic success, they've maintained a fresh DIY sound to their work that is no more evident than in their most recent LP, 2022's No Rules Sandy. <laughs> Now, while John Carroll Kirby is often celebrated for the catalogue of stars he's collaborated with, he's also renowned for his solo work. Since 2017, he's released eight albums which utilise his jazz background in new and intriguing ways. And this year, John released Blowout, which is inspired by the sounds and people of Costa Rica after a trip which inspired the record. I was delighted to chat to John from Los Angeles in the wake of the album's release. John, thank you for joining us on the show today. It's uh, wonderful to have you freshly tousled from Los Angeles on the line. I basically want to go on holiday to your new LP called Blowout with the beguiling meteorite cover. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of warm weather sounds from the album? Because although it was recorded in Los Angeles, it was kind of, I guess, that you scratched your head in Costa Rica and other environs around the world, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I I went down to Costa Rica and just got inspired down there by the nature and more so the the people actually that I met down there. I had the privilege to work with some calypso musicians down there and um found myself playing sitting in on their gigs at like local bars and just playing like Bob Barley covers and stuff like that. But really the story behind Blowout, which is kind of still revealing itself to me as as it's been released, uh, especially since it's instrumental music. I'm sort of realizing it's an album about having a good time on earth, you know, even in the worst circumstances. And and from that, I gathered a lot of inspirations by these musicians that I met there, especially one man named Junior Alvarez, who had told me his life story. I went to his house, told me his life story, and he had seen... um earthquakes, um, civil war, deportation, political imprisonment, all that. But um, throughout all that, managed to make music every day and at like 70-something years old, be one of the most lovely people to be around. So that was a big inspiration for the album. It's amazing. I mean, it sounds like the good humour and a lot of those learnings, those musical learnings and the vibe and the good times carried themselves from from Costa Rica into the studio in Los Angeles, John. How do you kind of, were you kind of making field recordings? Were you just making notes? Did you just have your phone? and would, Or were you kind of cutting very basic tracks when you were there as like an aid memoir so that you could go back to Los Angeles and build on those bones, I wonder? Yeah, it was very much the latter. I had a kind of 
mobile studio down there, a few keyboards, a drum machine and a computer. And then I was just kind of floating around different Airbnbs, hotels in Costa Rica. And um, one of them, which is like sort of the, the first track on the album, is it had a big, massive, massive ancient looking tree in the front of it. In that tree was a big uh, flock of um, oropendolas, which is a really cool bird that makes this sort of like hanging nest. And they would wake me up with this kind of like, it's almost like a turkey, flying turkey call. Uh, they would get up at like five in the morning and, and just be going nuts all day until the sun went down. So I felt compelled to write a song about those. Yeah, I love that. So they were they didn't end up, by the end of your stay in that particular apartment, that particular hotel, they weren't copying your groove. You were still copying theirs. Because I think birds mimic and vice versa, right? Birds mimic music that they hear. And, and we, yeah, so it's a kind of weird push-me-pull-you situation. But the birds won in this instance. But it's to the yeah. great success of the album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they're not getting any publishing, that's for sure. No, right. Yeah, you've got, you got to be a stickler for that, John. Don't let the birds, <laughs> don't let the birds yeah. win. They don't have anything yeah, to spend right. it on. Yeah, <laughs> I read in some of the notes surrounding Blowout that you kind of were also riffing as much as on the kind of island and the culture and the music and the stories of Costa Rica. You were kind of interested in this idea, idea of failed utopias. That is to us in England a beguiling, <laughs> a beguiling idea. So tell us about kind of what you mean and how you explore something that seems quite complex with a big backstory to it in lyric-free kind of just instrumental music? Yeah, that's always complicated. And <laughs> that's a difficult one, right? <laughs> that is a difficult one. And like, as I said, you know, like kind of the meaning of the album can kind of morph because there's no words to, there's no words to lock it into the meaning, you know? So sometimes I'm sitting here and like thinking about these songs I wrote and then maybe they're another meaning is re revealing themselves to me later on. But, you know, I think Costa Rica has elements of a sort of, it kind of has this fire fest element to it where it's a bunch of people going down there seeking, you know, like seeking some kind of liberation or just a relaxation or healing. And yeah, you see that where it's, it's kind of failed or then other people come down to poach on those people and take advantage of them. And, it kind of got me thinking about Firefest, the famous failed festival. And I sort of started thinking, oh, what if, you know, what if there was a Firefest, but it all worked out? Or it got me thinking about the Hale Bop comet of, geez, what are they called? Of drawing a blank, but there's there was a cult where they were all committed suicide wearing these Nike Cortezes. And I was watching videos of that, and they're so excited to go to this next planet. And you could see, despite being kind of disturbed or deeply, deeply misguided, there is a genuine excitement to be liberated from the suffering on Earth. And L.A. kind of embodies that, too. So these are sort of all the themes that I was pulling from in the record and kind of imagining maybe all these things actually worked out. And you go to this festival and everyone does get on a spaceship and fly uh, to a planet where where all the problems we deal with don't exist. And that's something I do in my writing in general is try to conceptualize something like that, even if it's in my head or even if it kind of gets revealed later or not at all, just to kind of glue it all together and help myself 
generate new material. I love that idea. I love the idea that that's informing at least some of the tracks on this new album. And how do you kind of keep that muse in mind? Do you kind of create, obviously, you've got like a sonic mood board, you've got these kind of field recordings, or, you know, these kind of rough and ready tracks that you made in Costa Rica. Do you kind of pin stuff up? Do you have to have pictorial inspiration on the walls in your studio? Like, do you know what I mean? To kind of remember that vibe and get back under the skin of an experience you had that might have informed some of those kind of tropical sounds, for example, on the new LP? Yeah, I don't exactly in that sense, like have a visual sense, but sometimes I'll try to like take things, take experiences that I have and and work them into the theme. So for example, on Blowout, the last song is called Flying Cat. And um, that's inspired by a really popular song that my friends in Costa Rica played me that they grew up with in high school. There's a song called El Gato Volador by El Chombo, I think. And it's a kind of reggaeton song. And it just means the flying cat. And the chorus is he's just repeating El Gato Volador over and over, just saying the flying cat makes no sense. But I took that and I was like, that's a ridiculous, that's a ridiculous song, a ridiculous title. But I kind of pulled from that and 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 used it in my own mood board in my head for blowout, which is to say that I thought maybe at the end of this festival everyone gets aboard this flying cat and flies to a new planet where they achieve the salvation they've been after this whole time. This is your next prog rock masterpiece, John. Exactly. We've got yeah, in the works bit, here. Yeah. It's so funny. About, that reminds me of an, an anecdote my friend told me where someone's grandpa was saying like, oh, check out Duke Ellington's band. They played out of a giant clamshell and this clamshell opened up and inside it was the band playing, I'm not sure if it was Duke Ellington, someone of that nature. And then their, their son or daughter said, fuck that. I listen to Parliament Funkadelic, they come out of a spaceship, you know? <laughs> I think we're well, we're well, we're well up there with um, with Neil Young and the silver spaceships and all the rest of it, right? Aren't we? That's good, solid ground to be on. So these kind of failed utopias, but taken in a kind of amusing way, and all the rest of it, and the Fire Festival, which people will be obviously be aware of after the Netflix film and all the rest of it. What about you? Haven't had to kind of experience this as a performer, have you? I mean, you're touring this brilliant LP what about before we get on to the good stuff what about the bad have you ever had to provide the entertainment at some sort of washed out thing where the, the cheese sandwiches are curling up at the corners oh my god I mean yeah my you know so I started my career as a, as a jazz pianist and my first gigs were at hotels weddings you know where no one's come for you, they've come for the booze exactly. or, the, or the social, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's funny you mentioned that because probably my first gig out of Los Angeles was when I was about 18. I got a gig at the Hyatt Maui or something like that where I had to, this, this is a traumatic <laughs> memory, really. Sorry bummer. to make you go over it. <laughs> no, no, but it's funny because I feel like it ties in. But yeah, I had to like play like three hours of like poolside Latin jazz in the afternoon and then go put on like a white tuxedo jacket and play big band jazz 
while people were playing dinner and then I had to change into like a tight black t-shirt and go play like like top 40 covers in the nightclub inside the Hyatt and that was a bummer and then they're feeding you like you have to go behind the whole hotel so you're sort of in the hall in the back halls of this hotel and like eating this like pork and rice which was actually pretty good but seemed to like just make you so sleepy so I have this memory of just being like just kind of wasted in Hawaii as one of my first gigs so yeah that's really funny haven't thought about that in a minute one for the memoir it's, oh, it's good stuff yeah yeah I'm all hot hot and full of pork in Maui at the Hyatt <laughs> yes, sounds yes. great as we said you're taking blowout on the road this has got such great potential. I mean, so much of your music has. What about touring it? Where, where are the places that you really enjoy going that you kind of, the audience kind of dig you and, and move and kind of give you something back, John? Well, I'm not just trying to suck up to you because it sounds like you have a British accent, but I do very much love playing in England, in London, especially Manchester, Bristol coming up. So actually, I'm playing at Mirrors Festival, just announcing that um, today, I think. And uh, man, London just, it just feels right there, you know, and, and that's really felt like a second home to me musically where people just get it, needs no explanation. So very much looking forward to that. But yeah, Japan, some of the most beautiful audiences there. Playing in Brazil has been a really fond memory of mine. LA, New York, um, you know, any, anywhere that wants to listen, I'm down to play. Nice. Yeah. Mm. You just have to watch it on the pork and rice. <laughs> yes, you got to chill on that. Yeah, we didn't see John Carroll Kirby and he looked like really just sleepy. He looked oh, sleepy man. and full of, full of lunch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, not and, the feedback I want. <laughs> I'm, yeah, sorry, sorry. That's not, that's not the general feeling coming to you from you. And I did want to ask you just before we go about your wonderful collaborations, you know, I mean, Blood Orange, does Blood Orange, does Harry Styles, does Solange just ring you up and give me a bit of that John Carroll Kirby magic? Do they have very specific ideas? Does it depend on the artist? Because you've got such a wonderful, unique sound that has sort of been around and come around. It's such a strong kind of, such a strong thing. Yeah. So how, how do those conversations start? Does that, does that just start with meeting people and, or how does that start? Yeah, it, it it's exactly how it starts. It just starts with meeting people, and uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure why why I get called for those things exactly, but I come and I and I try to just be a fly on the wall with with artists and and kind of really try to gauge what what they need, and sometimes they just need someone to do exactly that and just give them the space to to find their creative process and just assist in that. Other people like um, my good friend and collaborator, Eddie Chacon, are sort of more of a hands-on production and artist role um, where we're sort of shaping everything together from the ground up. So I guess it's, um, you know, to tie it all in, I feel like it's it's um, maybe a bit of flexibility that I have to play so many various roles. and I, And I attribute that to... In, in a sense, my upbringing in jazz and these, you know, gigs where I'm playing six hours a day by the pool, getting sunburned and stuff like that, where I can appreciate these uh, wonderful moments in the studio. It's a baptism of fire, that stuff, right? I like that. Yeah. Baptism yeah. of fire. Never heard that. 
that's um we do do pigeonholes sometimes on this program but we don't want to put you in one of those john but that jazz grounding that kind of early jazz does that feel like that being grounded and educated and fluent in that sort of music you know you can be a chameleon in, a, in any kind of music once you've got the kind of rigors the time signatures the adaptability and the ability to kind of riff and make up stuff to, to extemporize and improvise does that grounding in jazz and all those qualities allow you to kind of do many other things it does very much it does very much and but what i will add to that is that there's also been a great process of unlearning in my career where all these rules of jazz these chords that flow into the next chords you know that all has to go out the window sometimes and you have to find something that's guttural um and deeply intuitive and maybe even wrong you know in technically wrong but uh but works in a certain scenario so that that's been a bit a big part of my exploration over the years nice yeah well you need the grit to make the oyster right <laughs> yes yes <laughs> <laughs> or is it the pearl no you need the grit in the oyster to make the pearl that's, oh right that, that's right that yeah. is the i don't know whether that's a simile or a metaphor but i have struggled to come to the end of it <laughs> john uh thank you so much for talking us through through blower it's a wonderful lp as i said uh, we will urge our listeners to uh take it on holiday wherever they go it's such a lovely vibe for the summer and all seasons in fact but yeah thank you so much for for talking us through that wonderful new lp of yours called blowout thank you very much big pleasure talking to you And finally on today's show, Sylvan Esso is composed of North Carolina natives Amelia Meath and Nick Sanborn. The American electronic pop duo are a double act on stage and in the studio, and they're also a married couple. Over ten years and four albums, they've released a ton of catchy tunes and picked up legions of fans. I'm handing over now to my producer Sophie for this one, who's in the crowd at Sylvan Esso's first UK gig in five years recently. Heroically, they performed twice back-to-back on the same night at London's Electric Brixton. Sophie began by asking Amelia and Nick about the importance of performing in front of a live audience. I think before the pandemic, I would have said it was less important than I think we both think it is now. There was something that happened during that time where not having that ability, I think, made us realize that like a record isn't really done for us until we kind of complete the cycle of playing it in front of people and like feeling that reaction. So being able to get back out has just been, I mean, unbelievable. I feel feel like I'm in a whole new band. Like it feels so empowering and wonderful and like... And the UK, I mean, we've played the UK so many times, like we came to London alone nine times on our first record. And so being able to finally come back and then have that first show sell out so fast and then figure out a way to add another show on the same night, it just felt like I was just so grateful for the entire experience. It felt really like, like hyped and intense and beautiful. It was amazing. And you mentioned there that you were playing two shows back to back. And Amelia, lots of people know that as well as singing and writing the 
music, you're also an incredible dancer. And you were just moving for the entire performance. And I just couldn't believe that you were then going to do it all again straight after. It just looked exhausting. But I wanted to ask you, kind of when you're writing the songs, is kind of dance and movement always there from the beginning? Is that always something that you're kind of imagining how it might feel to to move to what you're writing? You know, I really rarely think about the kind of movement I'm going to be doing when I'm writing the songs. It's always a wonderful surprise to feel all of the, most of the movement is improvised every show. And it's so nice to discover what is there as I'm learning how to play the songs in front of people and to find what kind of movement the song that we created inspires. Amazing. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your album, No Rules Sandy, which came out last summer. Amelia, I'll I'll stay with you. Could you tell me a little bit about the process of creating the album? The album kind of created itself in a fugue state in a three-week period where we were in Los Angeles in January of 2022. And we decided that we wanted to release the record in the same way that we had created it. So everything happened very quickly. And basically every day we would sit down and just try to write a song together and it kept on working. And before we knew it, we had enough songs for an album and they were all, they all had a similar kind of frenetic, wild, improvisatory energy that we decided to keep, to just, to just keep and not polish too much. We also wanted every moment of the record itself to have sound in it, which is why there are in-between tracks, in-between every song. As well as that, you've got these kind of extra little sounds and snippets of kind of, I guess, your your lives, I guess, that you've included as well. And it feels really personal. You've been performing together for, for about 10 years. Nick, were you quite surprised that you were making the music so personal? Now it feels kind of much more vulnerable or did that just quite natural and like it was the right time to kind of include that sort of thing? I think the whole process of making the record ended up feeling very kind of of a moment and almost like scrapbooky. To, to me. And so when we were putting the track listing together, there was one moment where we included some little, you know, snippet of a voicemail. I can't remember what came first, but it was like the minute we did that, that felt like it was more true than it had been before. And I think every, it just felt like the right, the natural thing to do that. Like, if we want to let people in on this experience, it needs to feel Like you need to, even if you don't understand what we're talking about, you need to feel kind of that digital ephemera feeling that we all, we all have some version of all of those sounds on our phone or sitting somewhere, you know? And it's, when you smash them all together, you kind of get this snapshot of like a a single month of life. Mm. And it felt, it just felt like that was the right way to let people in on that. I I think we're always looking for, ways to make more doorways of accessibility for people. Cause we make like pretty weird music, but we want it to feel really accessible and really poppy and really welcoming and, and finding ways to like give people that, that doorway into it, I think is something we talk about a lot. Indeed. I'm out to sea. I know my fortune. It's you. 
kind of picking up on that it is kind of unusual music it's hard to sort of pinpoint you know exactly kind of what genre or things like that and is that something I guess as you've become kind of so successful over the years is that something that you feel like you sort of have to fight for a little bit that you need to make sure that you don't become too polished or that it, it stays a little bit kind of weird and wonderful Absolutely. I've been really feeling that recently. I think No Rule Sandy in a lot of ways was kind of like a personal welcoming back into making truly strange music that's just all our own. I think in the years after our initial success, I think we've been doing a very good job of maintaining our authenticity, but it is quite hard to not want to appeal to people that you or to like project onto our ear listeners or assume that they want to hear something in particular instead of just what you want to give. Once the machine of capitalism has you in its grasp, it loves to squeeze. Um, <laughs> so fighting to, to still be strange is something that I think we're going to keep on doing. Though really, like with everything hard, I find that the answer is usually relaxation. As I said, you've been kind of working together as, as Sylvanesso since 2013 and also together as a couple. And I wonder how, when you're kind of making this music and performing it and all the rest of it, how do you kind of ensure that you've got enough friction and it's the good kind of friction and, you know, you can kind of bat heads and, and something amazing can, can come out of that? Is that something that's quite sort of difficult to retain? I don't oh, that's so easy, because yeah. we're both very naturally combative people. <laughs> the friction part is easy. Yeah, the friction, <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's quite, yeah. Actually, the weirdest part is, there was a time years ago in the band where we there wasn't as much friction, and we, we realized it was because we were both screwing up. We were trying to, like... We were we just were, trying to be nice to each we other. We were trying to, like, not break it and be too nice to each other and not just say how we felt. And the music got boring. And so yeah. we like ditched all the stuff that we had made because we weren't arguing enough. Yeah, because it was boring. Yeah. And like just, be, yeah, being boring is, is the enemy for us, I think. So now you're prepared to tell each other, I actually, I don't like what you're doing at the moment. Let's <laughs> rip it all up and start oh, again. Yeah. That to us is the sign of a healthy interaction. Yeah, exactly. Also, the word that we usually use is, I think you can do better, which is even more maddening. <laughs> Yeah, it really pisses you off, but it's there. Like Amelia is always right when she tells that to me, and I, th I feel like I'm always right when I tell it to her. Yeah, <laughs> I think you probably are right, but I, Nick is much better at hearing it than I am. What well, you give? That's a gift. Like in any band, that's a gift you give to each other. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm not as good as it. At it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just finally, I just wanted to ask what, what's next for, for Sylvanesso and what kind of, you know, you've got two Grammy nominations. You, you know, the gig that I went to, one of two on the same night was completely sold out with just people that were going absolutely wild to, to see you live. What are kind of the next big things that, that you're planning on doing? 
We're about to embark on a, on the longest tour we've ever done, which will be nine weeks long. Uh, and after, yeah, which is nuts. And then after that, we're gonna go off into our little hidey hole and work on work on a new album. I think for some, yeah, we're gonna take some real time to work on it, which I'm so excited about. Yeah. Amelia Meath and Nick Sanborn of Sylvan Esso there. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Amelia and Nick and, of course, to John Carroll Kirby. Monocolon Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. And until then, from me, Robert Pounds, thanks for tuning in. Thank <laughs> you.